0: I am Jimbo Paris, and you are listening to the Jimbo Paris Show. Well, how are you doing today?
1: Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me.
0: Can you sort of begin by giving me a bit of a brief summary about yourself, who you are, what you're about, and what your message is?
1: So I'm April Davila. I'm a fiction writer and a meditation teacher. My first novel came out about a week before the shutdown for the pandemic happened. So it was terrible timing in terms of launching my first book. But it's actually been a wonderful year because the book got good reviews. It found an audience. It's, it's actually I just found out it won the Willa Catha Award for uh, Women Writing the West. So that's like brand new, hot off the press's news. So it's been a good book, a good year for the book. But then also because of the pandemic, I joined forces with this friend to create this online mindful writers platform. We were both writers who would meditate a little bit before we started writing. And then we had invited friends to join us on a Zoom. And we were each doing this independently. We didn't know we were both doing it. And then we learned that we were both hosting these mindful writing groups. And so we got together and started a group called A Very Important Meeting, where we lead hour-long meetings that start with a 10-minute meditation, go into a 45-minute writing session, and then have a little bit of just writer hangout time at the end. And To start something like that in the middle of the pandemic was not only lifeline in terms of my writing, but also just for my social well-being, you know, to to be able to talk to other writers, to be able to connect with other people just in general, was just a a wonderful thing to be able to do in the midst of the pandemic.
0: That's very interesting. And we'll definitely get more into mindful writing. But at the moment, can you please sort of tell me about what sort of motivated you to write this book? and where the title came from, and yeah, what sort a of story yeah, it's about
1: how this all came about. Let me show. Let me hold it up here. I have a. I've got a copy on hand. Ooh, there it is. So 142 ostriches. Yeah, the cover is lovely. Drawn by Dawn is her Instagram handle. She's a wonderful artist. So the book is actually a story about a young woman who inherits her grandmother's ostrich farm in the Mojave Desert, and. When, she, when the family descends for the funeral, all the skeletons come out of the closet because the, the kids are pissed off at being passed over for the inheritance. And there's some substance abuse issues in the family. And so the story is really much more about the family drama, the death of the matriarch, how everybody is, is dealing with that. And then this young woman, Tallulah, her desire to actually leave the farm, she didn't want to inherit it. But I loved the ostrich farm as a setting for a story about family because I just feel like family is full of contradictions. And I actually so the way it came about is that I was working on a travel piece about an ostrich farm in the Mojave. And I drove out there and I've been kind of thinking about the novel because I wasn't sure where I wanted to set it. When it started, it was very loosely based on my mom's experiences growing up on a dairy farm. But I didn't want to write a dairy farm. First of all, I don't know anything about dairy farming, despite my mother having grown up on a dairy farm. And dairy farming is the kind of thing that enough people do it that they're going to really know if you get it wrong. Whereas ostrich farming, (laughs) there just aren't that many ostrich farmers. And I did take a few little liberties with the birds for literary artistic sake. But anyway, so the story was loosely based on a dairy farm. I didn't really want to have a dairy farm. I love the desert. I was working on this travel piece and I went out to the ostrich farm And the minute I stepped out of my car and saw the birds, I thought, well, this would be a perfect setting for a family, a story about family. Because they're these like wonderfully graceful and beautiful birds, but they have this gnarly two-toed claw that can just gut you. They're like, like they'll... In one kick, they can cut you like from sternum to to hip bone and just like your guts fall out. It's terrifying. They have these beautiful long eyelashes and then this really scaly, dry, ugly skin. I just like walking contradictions. And I felt like family is kind of... I guess the real life version of walking contradiction. You, know, you can love someone intensely and miss them, but then they come to visit and you're like, Oh, I kind of wish they would just go now um, or be really angry at someone and still really miss them. There's just, there's so much about family that can feel contradictory and really pushes us to be able to hold two realities at the same time. And so that's why I said it on the ostrich farm, but it really is mostly a story about the family. The ostriches play a role, but mostly it's, It's about family.
0: When you were writing this book, what were sort of the challenges you had to overcome?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. Because it was my first novel. I think the biggest hurdle was simply learning how to write a book. I had this instinct. I wanted to write a novel. I was in a master's program and... You can learn a lot in school, but it's kind of like learning to swim, right? You have to jump in and give it a go. And so I actually I blogged about it. I set up the blog when I started writing the novel and it took me eight years to finish the novel. And what I blogged about were all my missteps, all the things that I kind of got wrong along the way, or things that, you know, I wouldn't go to a seminar, or webinar, or conference, and and someone would say just some offhand comment about like, oh, you know. Oh, they started it with a dream sequence. I can't stand that. And I don't be like, Oh, crap. And I'd run home and be like, you take out the dream sequence that I started the book with. Or, I mean, that's just an example. But there's so many things that I came to understand about writing a novel. And then every time I realized something, I would write a blog post about it. So the blog really became this kind of diary of everything I learned about how to write a book as I was going along. And that was the biggest challenge is just really craft And you can't really know what you need to know until you get into it. And so I've really made a practice of continuing to read books on writing, go to conferences. I love going to author readings. I mean, of course, they're all online now. I used to love going in person because you'll always learn a little something where someone will mention a misstep that they took along the way. And you're like, oh, yeah. And so just hearing from other authors, I think aside from just learning to write a book, The biggest challenge that I had was (laughs) I set the story. It's interesting when I, when I opened the story again, I mentioned that it was loosely based on my mom's story growing up on a dairy farm. And my mom's story was really about her surrounded by all these men who were different degrees of abusive in her life. And as the story became more my story and less her story, the characters kind of one by one became women in the book so uncle uncle chris became aunt christine and grandpa hank became grandma helen and and slowly slowly the story that i wanted to tell that i realized was really more about the women on this farm Because my experience growing up was the opposite of my mother's, whereas I I had almost no men in my life growing up. My dad was never around, didn't have any uncles, like even my friends' dads weren't around. Like there were really no men in my growing up. And so as I started to recognize that I had to let go of my mom's story and and tell my own story, it became much more women-centric, which I thought was a really interesting shift and an interesting opportunity to dig into my own biases as a writer because there are men in my story and I had to I had to learn how to have my characters interact with them in an authentic way which wasn't too hard I mean I have men I'm married I have a son I there are men in my life now but it, it was it became a very interesting and uh, introspective thing as I as I started to recognize that it was my story and not my mother's I find it
0: interesting how you actually sort of absorbed information as an author. You know, you had blogs, you networked, you sat around, and worked with people. Do you think that's a common characteristic that a lot of authors have? Does that quality make you stand out amongst authors in the way you pursue improving yourself?
1: I think all authors, to some degree, I should say, fiction writers. It doesn't seem to be as true for nonfiction writers, but fiction writers tend to shy away from crowds. We tend to not be terribly social creatures by nature. And so for me, one of the the ways the thing I had to do to allow myself to to do the things you listed, like going to readings and, and continuing to learn, was to give myself permission to just be kind of a either a nerd or a goof or whatever the word is that like someone might label me with. And just embrace the fact that, like, I think everyone should keep learning like their whole lives. Like, I hope to still be asking questions when I'm in my 60s and 70s writing novels. For me, the the biggest pitfall would be to pretend that I knew it all, which is kind of the instinct. It's like a self-defensive de- instinct, right? To, to try to not look like we don't know what we're doing. In terms of whether it sets me apart, I feel like the writers I idolize have the same kind of curiosity. They are the kind of writers who you'll see not only at their own readings, but at other people's readings, or they volunteer to be the host at a reading that they push through the initial discomfort that I think most people feel at being in front of a crowd, because that's part of being a writing in a writing community. You can't really be in a community of any kind, if you're not willing to you know, put yourself out there. And I think that can be challenging for writers and creative people in general, but that if we can push through that, there's so much to be gained from community in any artist. Well, probably any endeavor at all, but my experience is more in the creative
0: realm. You know, you talk a lot about fiction writers and how they're sort of similar in the same way they like to work in a more introverted fashion. Do you think most fiction writers operate the same? I'm trying to find a quality that makes you stand out because you obviously do have some unique qualities
1: Okay, so how fiction writers work. I think there are a lot of different ways that fiction writers work. There are, are some fiction writers who like don't have social media accounts and go off into the mountains and write their beautiful novel and put it out into the world. And for whatever reason, they're huge hits. And that's, you know, they don't to engage in the social side of things on a larger scale would be a distraction. I think there's a place for distraction. For me, I write in the mornings. I get up early, I write, I host these online mindful writing groups in the mornings so that I have some community with me in my writing. And right around lunchtime is when my creative energy starts to fizzle. At which point, you know, I write my blog posts, I get on Twitter. I I enjoy kind of the banter of of all of that. And And I recognize that it's distraction but I think there's a place for distraction. And I think it can be a fun way to kill a little time that where it becomes a problem is when there's you know too much of it. But in terms of what sets me apart as a writer, the thing that I've come to understand it is is the way that mindfulness has affected my writing and changed it really entirely. I mean, before, I can see a direct correlation between when I started meditating regularly and when my writing career started to take off. Because I was writing for years and years and years, blogging about how all the things I was doing wrong but it wasn't until I started being really honest with myself about my writing and mindfulness was a part of that, that I was able to see what was good and what wasn't. And then I was able to kind of target in on the things that weren't working. And because I am a more social person, I had some of these resources at hand. I do have people I can ask for advice. I have shelves of books on writing. I, I collect them. But I think the thing that if I had to choose one thing that makes me different from most writers, it's that mindfulness piece.
0: It is your network too, because
1: mm. I've personally
0: seen this with a lot of writers, but they tend to be a lot more to themselves. And you're sort of yeah. the type of person where you like to engage and communicate with different people. But yeah, definitely that mindfulness part as well. Why do you think mindfulness helped you and what do you sort of do in a sense
1: for that. Yeah, it's a good question because it sounds very vague when you, when I say it, but when I noticed the correlation, I actually took some time to think about it and journal about it because that's how I think. And I found some very concrete, very teachable things that mindfulness helped me do. The first and I think most important is that it helped me to quiet my inner critic. So many times when writers sit down to write, and myself included, You write a sentence and delete it and write a sentence and you delete it. And that is whether you recognize it or not, there's a little voice in your head saying, well, that was that was shit. You should just delete that. That was you're awful. Oh, you call yourself a writer like that narrative starts up as soon as we start to put words on the page. There's that little voice that's like, no, you should delete that. That was bad or that's not good enough. And if you can't recognize that, it'll control you and you'll never get past the first sentence because you'll keep deleting and rewriting, deleting and rewriting. And so for me, one of the biggest changes was being able to recognize that voice. And again, mindfulness, simply being aware of where your mind is going, no religious connotations, no anything like that, but simply awareness of your mind. And so when that little voice kicks in, just saying like, okay, thanks for your opinion. You can go sit down now and I'm just going to keep writing. And that allowed me to get words on the page. And then I'm a big believer in crappy first drafts. I mean, I I don't know how anyone (laughs) writes anything beautifully the first time. Some writers claim to do it. I think they're bullshitting. I really don't think anyone can actually get it right on the first pass. You have to get it on the page. And then when you're done with that draft, then you have to re-engage that critic. And you have to take everything that you've learned about craft and let that critic just go wild like when i finish a draft i put it in a drawer and i i step away from it for a while and then when i come back i will actively engage my inner critic by pretending that the draft was given to me by like somebody i don't like very much and that they're kind of wasting my time with this and it better be good and i just pretend like i read my own manuscript with that mentality of like better be good. Please don't waste my time. And as I read it and with that like super critical brain engaged, then I can, I see all kinds of stuff I missed on the first pass. And so I make notes on the paper and I go through the whole thing and then I make all those edits. I stick it in the drawer and I go away for a month and I come back and I do it again. But I think if you can't quiet that inner critic enough to get that first draft on the page, you you just, you're never going to get anywhere. You can't, how can you, you have to have words on the page. If you can edit a pile of poo into like a beautiful manuscript, but you can't edit a blank page. And that's actually the best writing advice I ever got was you can't edit a blank page, just get it on the page and then go back and make it good. So that switch was one of the things that mindfulness allowed me to do. It also, there's a meditation practice called mindfulness of emotion that h- helped me to explore you basically, you use it to evoke an emotion. So if I'm writing a scene where someone is angry, remembering, like just getting quiet for a moment, remembering a time when I was really pissed off and feeling into like, well, what does it really feel like? Like what, what is the experience of being pissed off in the moment? Because if I just write, oh, she was mad, you know, it's a very boring sentence. You want to be able to explain like her, her pulse is kicked up and sweating and she not sure what she should say. And you you have to get into all the details of the experience that character is having in that moment. And I mean, there's so many, I actually I'm just putting together, there's an online course I'm putting together right now. I'm calling it the six week mindful writer challenge where each week is actually one of these specific lessons that integrates mindfulness and writing uh, to pretty extent, extensive uh, degree. Exploring the topics and so there's a, there's a lot there. I can talk more about it if you want me to. I don't know how deep you and want to go.
0: and if you have a website, we could share it right now.
1: Yeah, uh, so it's just my name Aprildavila.com and actually there's a tab at the top for mindful writing. I don't have the class listed there yet because it's not actually up, but it will be soon. So if folks are interested, they can shoot me an email through my contact form or whatever get on the on the list for when it's when it's available. So let's say we talked about the inner critic, when to engage it, when to tell it to sit down, the mindfulness of emotion thing to build the characters. There's a, a, medit- a walking meditation where, again, just trying to be aware of the present moment, what is actually in front of you and walking through a space and what do you really see? So to go to a space, that say I'm writing a scene in a mall. To actually go to the mall, not as a shopper. I don't know about you. I hate malls, so when I'm there, I'm like laser focused. Like get there, get out. Like not dawdling in the mall. But if I need to write a scene in the mall, I can go and just walk slowly and notice what do you hear, what do you smell, what do you not just what you see, but all of your senses engaged in that process, and and it allows you to write a scene that that is much more full in its descriptions of its setting. And then once you've written that scene, and this is part of the, of the bringing the critic back in, but let's say I'm writing a kitchen, right? And I say, the daughter walked into the kitchen. You now, what I picture as kitchen, what's coming up in my mind is almost guaranteed different than what's in your mind right now when, you say, when I say kitchen. And so if I write, you know, she walked into the kitchen it may be that it's not important what the kitchen looks like, but if this is a place where my characters are going to spend some time, you got to start dropping some details in so your readers can know, you know, the the kitchen of a new mother looks completely different from the kitchen of a retired man or widower, right? Who maybe he doesn't really even eat at home, like his kitchen just isn't even used, but it's shiny and clean versus the new mother who there's like baby bottles and toys everywhere and it's a mess because she hasn't had time to run the dishwasher and even the description of the environment itself. Like what is it? Tyler linoleum? Is it a wood block countertop? Is there an Island is it a, is there a tile backsplash on the sink? And again, knowing the balance of how much to include is also important because you can very quickly overwhelm a reader if you spend three pages describing a kitchen. But I do feel like, You need to let your readers know where they are in the story, what the space is like. I think it adds a lot to a story. And the reason I read, and I assume that's true for a lot of people, is that I like to fall into other people's lives. I want to know where they're going, what they're doing, what they're feeling, who they're talking to. It's this voyeuristic experience of being in another life when you're reading. So when I'm writing, I try to be aware of that and give my readers enough detail to experience the space that they're in. What else and can I say on that? Another
0: thing, you sort of mentioned the mall and sort of getting your inspiration there, but you're also in different areas like Ecuador as well. Oh, that, that, yeah. Shouldn't, didn't that add to the story a bit? How, how were those experiences a little bit different? You were in the Caribbean too.
1: I was, yeah.
0: Yeah, I am Caribbean, so that's yeah. Oh, what part of the Caribbean? Trinidad.
1: Oh, cool. I have always wanted it together. I've never made it. So
0: how um, did all that sort of motivate you or add to what you did?
1: That's well, funny. Most of my stories to date are set in California, but the experiences I've had in different parts of the world definitely influenced me as a writer. I, I think the thing that travel gives you is the experience to, to see things through other people's eyes, which is a wonderful experience for a writer to be able to have. Because when you write more than one character, you want them to feel like individuals and so if you can have a character who's from a different part of the world or a different culture or even a different city, if you can imbue them with their own points of view, their own biases, their own take on the world, then then you have characters who can play off of each other in a more interesting way. I don't know. I would love to write. So, so the the book I'm finishing up right now actually has a lot more different locations. It starts and ends in California, but it travels quite a bit more. And it's been both fun and daunting. I have a 60-page section that's set in the south of Spain. And that was really fun to write, but I haven't been able to go to Spain. We haven't been on a plane in a long time now. And I don't know that we could have swung it even if it wasn't for COVID. Like, that's a big trip. But I feel like, to a certain extent, people are people. And you can write from your own experience. But having traveled to other places, I think I have more experiences of different kinds of people we all want to be loved and cared for and safe and fed. Like we have our same basic needs and then everything else is, is culture. It's how we're raised. Uh, And those are the things you can play with when you're writing different characters.
0: Can you sort of elaborate on what those specific experiences are from different people culturally?
1: Oh (laughs) yeah. Uh, So like trying to think of like characters I could pull from. So my father-in-law is from Ecuador, and uh, my my husband actually was born in Ecuador, but he came here when he was a baby. But my father-in-law has had this experience of really straddling two cultures. He is somebody who, I mean, he his uh, his English is better than mine, but he still has like that tiny touch of an accent. You know, he has this. I think it's such a charming, and I actually wrote this into my first book. I wrote a character basically based on him. I made the character from Mexico instead of Ecuador because it fit the story better. But the accent, I, I borrowed his accent for it. And I think I described it as any word that starts with S, he kind of puts an E in front of it. So it's S. So there's a character named Steve and, and this character refers to him as S Steve. There's always this little E eh in front of the S words. So little things like that, whenever I meet somebody from from somewhere else, or if I'm traveling, I'll I'll be taking notes of like little th- those little details of characters that you can you can weave into a story. That I just I find them again. It's something I find charming in stories that I read, and so I like to do it in the stories that I'm writing. I'm trying to think if there's another just little details for characters. So I have a, a character in the first book who um, he eats cereal out of the box by the handful, uh, like. <laughs> Uh, And my husband does that. And I I actually think it's quite charming that like he never pours it in a bowl, like put it in a bowl. (laughs) He doesn't do that. He just like eats it right out of the box. So I like gave that to one of my characters or you can have them give each other nicknames that only they call them that like nobody calls me ape. Nobody except for one friend I made in grad school from the day we met. He called me ape and I couldn't break it from it and break him of it. So now like I've given up, he calls me ape and he, (laughs) he's the only person who gets away with it. So like, if I was writing a character named April and a character named Eric, I would give Eric the, like, he gets to be the only person who gets away with, with calling me ape versus everyone else. I won't answer. My name is April. So details. I think good writing is in the details.
0: Did you get any characters from the Caribbean yet or you're still working on that?
1: No, I have not. You know, I had a story idea that I wanted, I thought was going to take off and then it just fizzled. I was going to set it in the DR, but it just, it fell apart on me. And recently I've been thinking about writing something in the South Pacific because I lived with my dad on an army base on this um, tiny Island on a, it's called Kwajalein and it's actually part of a military base and it's where the US. I S I don't know if they still do it, but they used to, shoot missiles into the center of this giant atoll to like for missile testing. And they were unarmed of course, but this was like part of my childhood summers is that like dad would wake us up in the middle of the night to ride our bikes out to the lagoon to watch these like streaks of light through the air as the missiles touched down in the middle of the lagoon. just like, it was the, I didn't realize that was a weird thing until I became an adult. And I was like, well, that's kind of unusual. Maybe I need to put a story there somehow. But I'm also, I have a terrible memory for details. So I am very reluctant to write memoir. All these things that I would like, to, they have to go into fiction somehow because I just, I'm totally daunted by memoir. I just do not have a great memory. So let's sort of
0: get into university history as well. So speaking of lagoons and oceans, were you trying to study marine biology a while back?
1: I was, I got my oh. undergraduate degree at Scripps College studying marine ecology. I loved it. But the thing I realized that I loved most about it was field work. I loved being out in the water. And there's a weird thing about science where I mean you have your grad students, your undergraduate students who are out in the water and they do go out with the researchers. But then there's like if you want to carry on with it, there's like a seven year period where you have to like be you have to get your masters and then your PhD and then and then if you're lucky, you might get to go out into the field once in a while to do some research. And I just as I started After I graduated, I took a few research jobs, and the pay was really bad because it's for college students. And the reason, one of the reasons, I mean, I love science. I'll always love science. I'm a big science nerd. But one of the reasons I chose science is because my mom was an artist, and growing up, we struggled a bit. And I thought, like, I'm going to choose science, and that'll be like a good, reliable career. Uh, And so when I found myself with a science degree, struggling to pay the bills, I was like, well, Damn, I might as well write, <laughs> do the thing I love to do if I'm not getting paid anyway. Um, <clears throat> which is an oversimplification, but that was kind of where I found myself in 2001 ish, and then that's when I met my husband. He was a filmmaker, and he was doing creative work professionally, and so I joined forces with him for a while. We uh, we made a film together called Harrison Montgomery, and then. He, we reached a point where we realized that we were good partners and that we could either be like a good married couple or good business partners, but probably not both happily. And so we kind of severed the business part of our partnership and decided we wanted to get married and have that kind of partnership, which was the right choice. I'm glad we made that choice. Uh, But so he still works in film and uh, I decided to do more writing. I went back, we ended up moving that we were in San Francisco when we met, we ended up moving back down to Los Angeles for his work. I went to USC for a master's in creative writing uh, and we've been here ever since. Yeah.
0: And when you started doing this more and more, are you, let's sort of get more into the business side of things. And when we look at this, are you self published or do you work with a publisher?
1: I do work with a publisher. So my first book was published by Kensington books There's not a ton of money in fiction. I mean, that's what I should qualify that literary fiction, which is what I like to write is rarely the kind of money making gig that allows you to not do anything else. There are genres of fiction, like if you're a romance writer, and you love writing romance, and you you can turn out two books a year, like you can actually make a pretty good living as a as a romance writer, because romance readers are voracious. They like tear through books and need more. So there's actually a fair amount of money in some branches of publishing. So romance, murder mystery, uh, nonfiction books tend to, you know, those can be the kind of books that you make a living off of. But literary fiction is definitely a niche. Most people read one, maybe two literary fiction books a year. It's more of a passion than a sole source of income. And so I do other things. I do freelance writing. I, I do coaching. We, the very important meeting that we're doing is, you know, again, none of these are huge moneymakers in and of themselves, but you kind of compile it all together and, and and it's enough. It's enough. And I'm lucky to have a very supportive partner who has a regular income. Well, actually we both have irregular incomes because we're both artistic types, but his tends to be a little more reliable than mine.
0: And you're also on Writer's Digest as well. Can you sort of talk about how that all came about?
1: So in 2017, Writer's Digest listed my website as one of the best websites for writers. They have a, every summer they do 101 best websites for writers and they listed my website, which was uh, an honor because I have been reading that magazine since I first got the inkling that I wanted to write. And part of the way that they bring people into the community is that if you are listed on their list of websites, they invite you to teach at their, one of their conferences. So they have a New York conference, they have an LA conference. And so they invited me to teach a session at the novel writing conference. So I did that in, I guess that was also 2017. And then I kind of lost track of them for a little bit and I've reconnected with them. I'm actually going to be teaching a session at their conference this October, assuming everything's in person. If not, it'll be online, but uh, I am slated to do a session there about Scrivener, which Scrivener is one of those things that it's a writing software. It's a, I have just, I love it. I do all of my writing in Scrivener and again, part of my documenting my own learning process. Every time I figured out some new thing that Scrivener did, I would write a blog post about it. So I have a whole collection of those blog posts on my website as well. And I've kind of gained a reputation for rightfully for being a a Scrivener nerd. So I'm going to do a session at the writer's digest conference about Scrivener, how to get started with it, how to use all the tips and tricks and it's kind of a fun little side thing that I do. I was officially, I was an affiliate for a little while. I was like an, a brand ambassador, but that was, that was fairly short lived because they just don't go to enough events for that to really be a worthwhile business arrangement. So mostly I just sing their praises because I love them.
0: Very right, good. I'm asking you could you please bring up your website? I definitely want to see. It.
1: Yeah, sure. So you land on my blog page. So it's always the most recent blog post. This is actually a guest post that was written about finding a historical fiction editor, which is definitely relevant because I'm working on a historical fiction piece. But if you, so at the top of the menu there, 142 ostriches, you can learn more about the book. There's a short summary, there's uh, reviews, things like that. If you click on mindful writing, you get a few of the links to the different things I'm doing on that front. Yeah, so this talks a little bit, like I was saying, of of how I started to notice a, a correlation between mindfulness practice and my writing improving. And then actually, if you click on, close the subscription pop-up there at the bottom, right. And if you scroll down a little bit there, I got my little ostriches everywhere. They're fun. So a little bit more, you've got the things I write about or things I blog about. Oh no, second (laughs) pop-up my uh, my web guy's been doing some, some work on the back end, So that's probably a result of that. Uh, So the California, if you, you don't have to click on all these, but I'll kind of run through what they are just so people know what they can find on the site. If you click on California, you get a list of, it's basically as I've researched projects for my different stories, I come across all these cool trivia facts that really don't make it into fiction, but I wanted to share them with everyone. So I did a whole series of blog posts about like fun California trivia for a while. I did a whole series on grammar kind of, cause I just got, I got a lot of requests from people uh, about basic writing classes. And at the time I was teaching a writing class to a, a, an engineering company. They were having some challenges. They had so many super smart people on their team. Some of them, like English, wasn't even their first language. And they were having trouble getting their bids accepted by cities because the, the just the, the bids that they were putting together, they weren't very compelling. And so I was teaching a really basic level how to write super clear you know, you don't have to get fancy to get your idea across. You just have to be clear. So I, I ended up taking a lot of that content and writing a series on like basic grammar, how to write clearly and concisely. Miscellaneous is just random stuff. Scrivener, I mentioned, I have, I think, 42 different posts on Scrivener at this point of dif- different things I've learned about the writing software. And then writing is every, it's most of my posts are about writing, things I've learned about writing, projects I'm working on, all of that. Yeah. So so that's mostly what you find on the website.
0: What do you think is the main thing that draws in your audience? I could see from mm-hmm. it, your website definitely has a lot of user appeal. Are you mainly yeah. more of an inbound marketer? You sort of depend a lot on people coming to the content. You're trying to attract people, or are you more of aggressive? Because I could tell from a lot of the blogs, you're more of a person that likes to draw people in.
1: Yeah, I... I decided about nine years ago that I wanted the blog to be useful. So I started off with that idea of writing about my writing and the challenges that I was facing. But when I first started, it was really more of a diary, almost kind of whiny of like, this isn't working. (laughs) And I decided within a year of starting to make the shift to try to be as useful as I could be. So I would have some kind of challenge I was facing when I was writing, but instead of just writing about how writing is hard, I would say, okay, I'm struggling with this. And I would go find an answer to it and then write about the answer that I found. Now, sometimes the, you know, I went deeper than others, or sometimes I even, you know, I got it wrong, but I always tried to be useful with the blog. And that, that has been kind of the underlying theme of what I have put up on my website, And then in terms of marketing, it's there's been an interesting shift in the last, I would say, two years for a while. So after I got my degree in writing, I worked for a marketing company. It was marketing PR, but they worked with local governments. So I did a lot of social media work. I did a lot of writing newsletters, writing updates from the city manager, that kind of thing. So that was that was kind of my area of expertise. It was what I was comfortable with. And so when I got to about, it was about six, seven years into writing the blog, I definitely got more aggressive because that was just what I was doing all day at work. So when I turned to my own material, I kind of brought that same mentality. I, I built up a newsletter. I got really aggressive about social media and I was, I got the schedulers so you can schedule tweets to go out at different times. And I would just link back to blog post content, blog blog post content. I was on Facebook all the time. And then I actually ended up getting really frustrated with Facebook because I had to pay to um, boost my content. And then like, nobody would even see it. I don't know. I'm, I'm actually not on Facebook anymore because I just hit a point where I was like, I can't, I can't handle Facebook anymore. So I decided just to focus on Twitter. And then I do have an Instagram account, but that tends to be much more personal. I mean, I'm still friends with whoever wants to be friends on it, but I tend to post less about my blog posts or whatever. That tends to be like pictures of me at the soccer field with the kids, that kind of thing. So Instagram is the more personal side. Twitter is definitely more focused on being useful and bringing people to the blog for the content that I have there. And I went really gung-ho, especially on Twitter for a couple of years. And it really hit a, a climax when I was, when my book came out, I scheduled all these tweets about like, Oh, you gotta get the book and promotion. And I mean, it was great. It was good to have that ability to do it. But then, uh, as after the book had been out for a few months, I started to kind of wean off how much I was posting And what I noticed is that my traffic just keeps going up. And so just as an experiment, I just dropped my posting way down. I still post like to Twitter, maybe once a day, maybe twice a day. Uh, And it's, it definitely have reached, I've reached a point where I feel like I've been useful to enough people that they tell their friends. So even though I'm not even on Facebook, probably a third of my traffic comes from Facebook, people just sharing posts on there it's been I wish I I wish I understood analytics a little better to go in and really see what shifted in the time that like I stopped posting and and traffic kept going up because I would love to know what that magic sauce was I could probably sell that somewhere but I don't know exactly what that was but I'll take it I'm happy to to have the audience and people are really supportive like they leave really great comments or they'll share what worked for them on something like if I write a post about I don't know, like this historical editor thing, and people will leave comments of like, "Oh, well, this worked for me," and it, it almost starts to feel like a community that's built up around the blog. Which I feel really lucky to have. It's it's not a it's not a given when you start a blog, and and I feel really really lucky to have that. Of course, it took ten years of regular posting. Like it, it's not like I didn't do the work. It does take time. I know that's part of it.
0: And when it comes to audience building, what do you think? Is the key thing you think helped you build your audience? Because I think everyone has a different reason for why their audience grew. I'm not talking about a lot. I'm talking more about you in general because of your Thank personal you. brand.
1: Oh, my personal brand. I should probably think more about my personal brand. I don't know. I Where I would like my personal brand to be is kind of in this like Venn diagram of like soccer mom, author. And I don't know, like rock star. there's like this little triangle in the middle where like a little bit badass, a little bit like tender mom, and a little bit like fiction writer that that's where I would like my my personal brand to be my my partner at a very important meeting wrote this um wonderful piece for uh, McSweeney's called "My Personal Brand is I don't Want to die." <laughs> which was all about trying to make a living as a freelance writer, kind of joking on the, the, like the way her logo looks and like, okay, do you like it? Will you hire me please? Cause I don't want to die. Like I need health insurance. I need food. I need to pay my rent. Please hire me. So I always think of that whenever I like the question about personal brand. Cause I know it's important you, as we represent ourselves online, which in this day and age, we all do to some degree. You do have to be aware of what you're putting out there. The, the only real filter I use is whether it's at all related to writing or mindfulness. Those have kind of become the two filters that go through my content, except for Instagram, where I allow myself a little more of of the personal side of myself.
0: What's a certain piece of advice you would give to yourself if you were to just do this all over again? What type (laughs) of advice would you give to your younger self?
1: Yeah. I think I would advise myself to be patient. It just takes a little while to, uh, and I I can be very impatient. You know, when I try something and it doesn't work, you know, oh, I have to try something else and jump around too much. And I thankfully had some kind of instinct to, to stay with the blog, to stay with my fiction, even as other things in my life kind of got crazy and staying with it ended up really being, the ticket to, to finding where I wanted to be. And so that patience, I think if I could tell my, my 10 years ago self, anything, it would just be to, that it's going to take a little time, finish that first book to, to build up a community around my writing, to find a place where I really feel like I'm grooving with, with what I'm doing.
0: What do you think is going sort to of the future of your writing now? So you talk a lot about ostriches are you going to get into more detail about ostriches like the size of their eggs
1: (laughs) no totally done with ostriches uh my next book is almost done i've got a big stack of papers right here it's yeah. Almost done. I'm doing a final edit on it now, and then it'll go off to my editor. Uh, but this is this is a an epic. Ro- it's not a it's not a romance, but it has romance in it. It has a magical element. It has historical fiction elements. It's it's the story I wanted to write for my first book, but I just kind of knew I didn't have the chops to to do it well. So I wrote the ostrich book first. Now I'm writing this book. It doesn't have a title yet, but as soon as I have a title, it'll be on the blog. People can follow along if they want to know. But I'm really excited about this second book. It's a whole different direction. And then I actually already have 150 pages written on book three, which is about an ultramarathoner trying to win Western States, which is the oldest ultramarathon in the country. And yeah, so these runners, they run a hundred miles and they're pretty much just alone, like in the wilderness running by themselves for like 18 hours, 20 hours, 24 hours. They don't sleep. They barely eat. Uh, they like hallucinate. I'm just fascinated by like why people do this. So the third book is, is set on the trail of Western States, but right now that's just like a hot mess of pages. It's not really a book yet. Hopefully it will be
0: pretty good. And, Another thing I want to get into a little bit later is definitely creativity and how to sort of spark that over time. However, I'm still sort of interested in your business perspective. How did it sort of work from going from being a normal writer to building an audience and then making money? How did you sort of get into that financing and marketing stage Uh, of your business and how hard was that transition? How easy was it?
1: It's definitely hard because again it takes time so if you're on the right path you don't know immediately if you're on the right path or if you're barking up the wrong tree um i think in terms if people want to make living as a a living as a writer freelances finding a couple of regular clients who call on you for work and pay you what you're worth is the gold standard like that's where you want to land in terms of making making a living as a writer. And that is hard because as soon as you have enough clients lined up, one of them will disappear for some reason. And then you have to find another client. Um, I always tell people don't write for free. Don't write for exposure. Someone said, and I love this. They said, people die of exposure. Don't write for exposure. I, when I was starting off, I would write a little bit for free for like my sister's website or my mom's website. Like I, you know, but they were the only people that I wrote for free for. And then when I had the blog, even when the blog was in its early stages, everyone who hired me as a freelancer said to me, Oh, I saw your blog. So the blog becomes this calling card of like, okay, I can actually write. And if you can having sections on your blog where you showcase people that you've written for, even if they like, they don't have to know that it's my sister, right? We have different last names. So I, you know, I would showcase her website and the content that I wrote for her website. And so building up your resume charging what you're worth which is such a hard question because what are you worth at any given point in your career what is your work worth but i think most writers do undercharge and i think when you hit the point that you're confident enough to to charge more for your writing then you can actually start to to put together a living because if you're if you're making a dollar an hour there's no amount of work you can do that will pay your bills you 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 have to charge what you're worth and that that's always tricky it, it it's such a hard thing to do I would, I mean, the majority of my income is freelance work. I actually just did a pie chart the other day because I was curious. I listed my income for the first six months of this year. There was a little bit of royalties. There's a little bit of coaching work, but like the majority is is freelance work. And so in terms of building uh, income, that's where I would focus. And then once you have enough stability in your life that you can start turning towards things like blogging, then that can be to like build your audience for other things that may come later. Uh, but that's slow. That's a long process. People, you have to build trust with people. Like one of my most recent coaching clients, he said to me, you know, I've been reading your blog for six years. And he really was like, he quoted me things I'd written years and years ago. And he's like, you've never tried to sell me anything. And so when I saw that you were taking coaching clients, I was like, oh, I trust her. I, I want, I want her to be my coach. Uh, I mean, that's a relationship that's been building for six years. He's been reading my blog and it just takes time.
0: Yeah, the general theme is usually it just takes time. Yeah. You know, consistency, hard work, and experience. You know, those are the main things. Now, you sort of talk a lot about being creative and, you know, using your creative mind. How do you actually tap into creative? Because I'm a creative Mm. person myself. Yeah. How does it work for you? Are you a daydreamer? Are you.
1: I'm a note taker. I think okay. if I had to attribute, kind of like I was saying, like I was at the grocery store the other day and there's this one woman, <laughs> I love her, her name's Judy. And I always try to get in her line because there's always something dramatic happening in Judy's life. And she's going to tell you about it while she's ringing up your groceries. And I have more than once like run home from the grocery store and like <laughs> written down something that Judy said because man, that woman's life is a, like a whirlwind. And she, I don't know, there's definitely snippets of her life I will put in a novel someday. Or if I'm waiting for the kids at soccer practice, I'll just pull out my journal and write about like, oh, it's windy today. And so it smells like this because I'm near the LA river and I can i can smell something. Wa- like I'll just, I try to take as many notes as possible. And then I have a file where I just shove them all in. And then whenever I'm writing something, or if I need an idea for something, I pull out that file and it's a mess. I'll just like sort through it. And most of the ideas, like the actual story ideas that go in there are generally not very good. They're like the dreams I scribbled down while I was half asleep. Or, But every now and then there's some observation that is great for a character. Or maybe there's a dream that wasn't quite a story. But if I pair it with this other idea, it makes a story. For me, story creativity is really uh, about puzzling. It's one of the things I love about storytelling is that you have to, you have to figure out the story. You have this instinct that that person goes this way and they meet this person and that there's some conflict, but you have to figure out what the whole story is. When do you start it? When do you end it? How many people get to come into the story? What are they bringing to it? Where are they from? And then even down to like the very last round of editing. When I'm like one of the things I'll do is I'll search for the word red and I allow myself one red per story. And then the others have to be brick or rose or you know, I have to find a shade of red that works. And I do the same for blue. And I, I love the puzzle of figuring out like, okay, I get one blue and then, but this is really more turquoise. Like when I pictured this in my head, it was more turquoise and this one was more sky blue and this one was like uh, midnight blue, but getting more specific with my writing I, I love the puzzle and the challenge of making sure what's on the page really matches what I'm seeing in my head.
0: I love that. When you started to get into this whole mindful, you know, writers group, how many other people are in there? And is this group sort of a part of your identity? Is this something you also help to push and market? You think you will ever get the idea of bringing that into more of your business too?
1: It definitely is more and more all the time uh, just because I'm interested in talking about it and sharing it with people. It's a free group. Uh, If folks are interested in writing, they should give it a shot. We're at averyimportantmeeting.com. But I, it is, like I said, it's just, it it was such a surprise because I was doing just this tiny little group with a couple of friends. And when I partnered with this other woman who's in Seattle And we both, we compiled our newsletters and just shot out a note to everyone we know saying that like, hey, we're doing this. And people just started coming. And we're hosting 15 meetings a week now, hundreds of people every week coming. And they're just the most awesome people. They're just authentically creative, just looking to carve out an hour of their day to do something creative. And we hear over and over again how, even people who've never meditated before taking that 10 minutes to just quiet their minds has opened up new story ideas. Uh, we had a, a Marine vet who was working on a memoir and he came and he said that doing the meditation helped him kind of open up into the story in ways that he hadn't before and find new layers to the story it's just been a wonderful experience. And I would highly encourage anyone who has any inclination to write to come join us. It is free. We ask for a $5 donation if people can swing it. But I mean, it's for writers. We know writers don't always have money to spare. So we we keep the, it's a PayPal thing. You can shoot at $5 if you want to. We keep the attendance list like totally separate. It's a no pressure thing, but we just, it's a wonderful community. So all are, all are welcome. If anyone is interested, it's a very important com
0: and throughout all this do you think a lot of authors have learned a lot through you you think as do you think you're more of an author that focuses more on books or are you more of a sort of a coach for authors as well how is that changing now because i'm assuming now that you have so much experience there's a lot of authors out there that learn from you now so you're you have more of a different role in the community too
1: I do feel myself more in the middle of the community for a long time. I felt like I was looking up at everyone in my community, all these writers who had like, they'd finished their books or they, you know, they were out being writers in the world. And now I still have all those people I look up to. Um, But now I also have some people I'm working with who are, you know, they're still trying to finish their first book. And I, I don't think finishing your book makes you any more of a writer. If you write, you're a writer. I I truly believe that. And I also am a big fan of this idea that if you are part of a creative community, one person's success is everybody's success. Because if my friend in my writing group finds an agent and a publisher and her book does really well, that's great for me just for being like in her writing community, not only because she can share her experiences with me, but you know, uh, to pull an example like that, the woman I was thinking of, she ended up blurbing my book, like her, her quote is on the front page here of what she thought of my book. And, and so you, you get to a point where you're supporting each other in so many ways. So even though I do feel myself more in the middle of that gradation of, of, I guess, writerly career, I really don't think of anyone who hasn't published their book as like less of a writer. It's just maybe they're still learning if they're still figuring some stuff out. Uh, and eventually they will. And then I'll they, be asking them for blurbs, just like they're asking me, it just becomes the, you all help each other out. And I, I love that about co- creative communities and the way that people support each other.
0: And are there any final words or things you would like to say to the audience?
1: I think everyone has some creative thing they want to do. And there's, I mean, the definition of a creative thing is so broad But I feel like a lot of times as grownups, we have shut that part away. At some point in our childhood or adolescence, there was no time for it. Or somebody told us that it wasn't important or whatever, you know, fill in the blank. For whatever reason, we've stopped engaging in it. And I just feel like life is so much richer if you can even just touch into something that makes you happy on a creative level, even if it's just writing in a journal or doodling a picture or I don't know, building a sandcastle, like it doesn't matter, but giving yourself permission to be creative without any judgment or expectation, it just makes life richer. And I I would wish that for anybody uh, who is feeling stuck or, you know, midlife crisisy y about like, what am I doing? What's the point of all this? Like, Find some creative, fun thing to do, and and just dive in. I, I think it makes all the difference in a life. All
0: right. Well, thank you again, April. It's a privilege yeah. having you on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Jimbo Paris Show.